this morning, just the opportunity to get together, get in your word together, talk about who you are, how you reveal yourself. Um, and Father, just pray that, that as, we, as we talk about you, as we learn more about you, that we would not fail to, to understand that, that this is supposed to lead to worship and that we would worship you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, gentlemen. Um, here's what we're gonna do. We we we're gonna we're gonna finish finally finish uh, a couple of attributes and then be on to the next chapter. If if you're reading, um, you've had time to read like Sharnock's Attributes of God by now, or or um, or Bavink if you're reading him, or if you're reading Turretin at that time. Um, because I've taken so long. If you're reading. Grudem's chapter on the attributes of God than, than you were done like three months ago. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> finishing up that first chapter that Grudem had on the attributes of God. And, and so, I, I'll give you guys, do you guys all have a reading schedule? Uh, I have a one we'll, time. we'll meet this week and next week, and then I'm going to give you a reading schedule for um, January because the reading schedule will change. Um, it's changed the whole time. Maybe you should leave the dates off and just have the order. I, I'm going to. That's exactly right. I'm going to leave the dates the off dates. and just have the order. Yeah, because it hasn't worked out according to the dates I've planned. So um, that way at least you're reading. No man knows the time or the date. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, no, not, not, even, not even the past. All right. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about jealousy and wrath, which are, you know, always exciting topics that everybody can't wait to talk about. So... Um, let me ask you guys a question. Uh, <coughs> how many of you guys, what do you guys think when you normally hear the word jealousy? I, I guess I'll ask it that way. When you hear the word jealousy, what do you think? Idolatry. You think about idolatry? In what way? Why would you be jealous? I'm thinking from a human perspective. Why would you be jealous of anybody else's things if you're not satisfied in God already? Okay. I think of the, you know, old-fashioned husband-wife jealousy or boyfriend-girlfriend where, you know, you know, why are you looking at that guy? Probably want what you have, stuff like that. Okay. Morning. Morning. (laughs) Anybody else? You guys have any other thoughts other than that? Yeah. What do you got? Same thing. Uh, If I weren't wearing, like, a theology cap or whatever, thinking cap, trying to Think of it through theological lens. I would probably just think of like mean, mean girls, or just you know, think of clients of mine who's jealous over stupid things and, and whatever. Um, just a typical, you know, there's something. That yeah. How many of you guys? I mean, I was a little bit stunned. I remember the first time I contemplated the fact that that the Bible says God is jealous, and then actually commends jealousy as an attribute for for man as well. It just doesn't sound right. Does it sound right to you? I tend to equate it with immaturity. Immaturity, okay. So is jealousy broken up into <clears throat> different categories? Because there's definitely a sinful part of it. There's a sinful part of envy, for sure. Um, and there's a sinful application of jealousy, for sure. And that's mostly us. That's the one we're most familiar with. <laughs> we're very familiar with the <laughs> sinful application of jealousy, right? Yeah. You, 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 uh, you're looking at my woman, right? <laughs> you know, okay. Um... <clears throat> Which isn't always bad, incidentally. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, Let, let's look at the, the, the basic meaning for jealousy. God's jealousy means, essentially, that God continually seeks to protect his own honor, right? Or uh, to, to protect his own honor, which is, which is to keep what is his own. 
and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but it means that God is continually seeking to protect his own honor, right? Um, or to keep what is his own. So let's look at some text. Look at, let's look at the, the law first. Um, Exodus chapter 20. Let's look there. Is there it's the second book of the Bible, so it should be easy enough to find. Um, chapter 20, and we'll, we'll just, just look at the whole law here. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what does he start with? What does Moses start with? As God's speaking, in other words, he starts with recording what God said first, but what does God say first? I am the Lord your God. Okay, I am the Lord your God, and what did I do? This is who I am, and what did I do? Brought you out of slavery. Brought you out of slavery. So you notice, even with the law, he starts with the gospel. I've redeemed you. I've redeemed you. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is important for, for us to keep in mind, you guys, as we're understanding how the Bible runs. Um, if you understand how the covenants work, you guys are familiar with the covenants of Scripture? Okay, so God makes a promise to Abraham, and it's a, it, what kind of a promise, what promise does he make him? You're the father of many nations. Okay, you'll be the father of many nations. Um, it's both a conditional and, and unconditional covenant. It's, it's got conditions, um, so, you're, so you're aware. Um, but it's unconditional in that they're met by Jesus. Uh, they're met by God. God. God meets the conditions of the covenant. But there are conditions put on Abraham. So there's only more than one place in that covenant. So, so you, have, you have this covenant given to Abraham, and it's a, it's, it's a co- what kind of covenant is it? it? Would you say it's a gracious covenant, or would you say it's a, a legal covenant? Okay, it's a gracious covenant. Why? Because there's no law. Because there's no law? That's why it's a gracious covenant? Okay. It, what, what, you guys, let's just, let me get real simple. What are the promises made to Abraham? And why would they be gracious? What's that? They're just one-sided. This is God's, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And what was he going to do? Make him a father of many nations. Anything else? Your descendants will be like this. I mean, giving him a son when his wife's barren. Yeah, I'm going to give you a son. Bless all nations through him. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. I'm going to make your I'm going to make your name great, your nation great, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? I guess he's, a, is he in a sense, adopting Abraham? Just... Yeah, and he's going to bless him, right? What's interesting is, now, Abraham was in sin. He was walking as an idolater at this time. God calls him out, okay? He's an idolater. God calls him out, not because there's anything good in him, he's an idolater and he walks out in faith with God and as Jason reminded us if you guys were there a few weeks ago during his sermon on Abraham in Genesis 12 when he makes the promises he makes five promises to him right uh, five blessings I'll bless you this way I'll bless you that way I'll bless those who bless you and he, five blessings and what are those what are those sort of counter curse yeah the five curses God gives in Genesis 3 it's five curses that he gives in Genesis 3 with, with one with one promise in the middle of that curse, which is I'm going to send the seed of the woman to conquer the head of the serpent. But it's five curses, and then when you come to Genesis 12, and he calls out Abraham, he's going to start fulfilling Genesis 3.15, he gives five blessings to Abraham. Right? I'm reversing this curse. You guys follow that? 
Okay, it's going to come through the covenant I'm making with Abraham. Now we see Abraham's covenant. Go, oh, that's very gracious. And then we come to Moses, and what's the first thing we think? <laughs> this covenant is what? Just a legal covenant, right? Mm-hmm. We don't think of it as very great. Did you guys think of Moses' covenant as very gracious? No, no, no. But is is Moses' covenant part of? Uh, is it is it a whole new thing, or or does it follow Abraham's? It's part of bringing the blessing to Abraham's many nations, right? Yeah. It's an administration of the covenants being made with Abraham, isn't it? It's not It's not like it's separate, okay? It's an administration of that same covenant. Now I'm going to... Who is it that he brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? Abraham's children, right? His people, right? His nation. Now this is what you're to do. This is how you're to live as my people under this covenant under this administration. But you're still in Abraham's covenant. You guys follow me on that? That's still happening. God's keeping, he's keeping the promise. If you read throughout Exodus, he's over and over again saying, I'm keeping the promise I swore to Abraham. You guys follow me on that? He's keeping it in this administration. That continues on. You get to the Davidic administration of the covenant, right? And the promise happens. It's still a continuation of what was given to Abraham. And you get to the new covenant, Again, now once the new covenant is fulfilled, what what do we what do we hear that we are in the new covenant? What are we called? If anyone's a believer, then he becomes a what? A child of who? God, but who else? Abraham. Abraham. How could that be? Children of the promise. Yeah, children of the promise. What promise? The promise made to Abraham. You guys follow me on that? Yeah. Okay. And so when we come to the law, while the law in itself is not gracious in the sense that it doesn't it doesn't when you keeping the law does not somehow uh, earn you any merit with God. It's not some kind of, you know, it, it, it actually does condemn you, right? In that sense, the law condemns you. At the same time, it's still given in the context of a gracious covenant God has with his people. You guys follow me on that? And so it's laid out here, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The context for me giving you this law is that you're my people because I've redeemed you. You guys follow me on that? Okay. So gospel is always proceeding the even their ability to keep the law. They didn't understand that fully. So, um, you shall have no other gods before me, first commandment, right? And that doesn't mean you can have other gods after me, right? That's not, before is not an order of priority. <clears throat> like, well, I first I worship the Lord, then my wife, then my kids, or then my kids, then my wife, depending on the quality of your marriage, and then my job, and then, you know, okay, so if, whatever it becomes, you just follow me on that? Before me means in my presence. There's no other gods, period. Can't have any. And then he goes on and says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the wa- uh, that's under the water. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, now, let me ask you this question. When he says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, what's he telling them they can't do? Make idols. Make idols. Okay, but is that is that not just a repeat of the one before? You shall have no other gods before me? What makes those two things separate? He's not telling them don't be an idolater twice, right? So what, what separates those two commands? He's basically trying to say don't try to... 
Yeah, it's a good try. Yeah, it's a good try. Anybody else know? Well, I would say that it's, you know, a degrading act to equate God with the image of something he created. Okay. And Matt's, Matt, I think, sort of said the same thing. Well, well, what's the difference in the nature of these two commandments? In the first one, you have the commandment, you shall not have any other gods before me. So you've already been commanded not to have any other gods, right? Mm-hmm. That's, so there's nothing new coming in the second commandment in that regard. You've already been told who to worship. Okay? And who not to worship. You've already been told that. The next one tells you what? How to worship. How to worship. You don't worship me like the other people worship their gods. What? Pagan nations carved out statues, right? And worship them. You're not going to worship me the way other pagan groups worship their gods. You're going to worship me the way I determine. Okay? So God doesn't just tell them who to worship. He tells them how they are to worship. You guys hear that? There isn't like a, you know, you don't get to determine how you worship God. You guys know that, right? It isn't like, I really like this kind of worship. He doesn't care. Right? God doesn't give a rip about what kind of worship you like. What does he, what does he care about? I've commanded you to worship me this way. So that's how you worship me. Because what matters is what kind of worship I like. You guys follow me on that? He's God. Um, he gets to determine how he's worshipped. And he, does, he isn't going to be worshipped by carving out statues. Make sense? Okay, like the pagans worship their gods. There's all kinds of ways that we syncretize <coughs> pagan worship and Christian worship now, right? That are not commanded. And if you want to get some more context on this, you can go to like Leviticus mm-hmm. and read about Nadab and Abihu. You guys know that story? Mm-hmm. What happens with them? Didn't they have right. offer a sacrifice? The strange fire? Yeah, they offered strange fire. What was the, what? What does that mean? What, what, what kind of inappropriate sacrifice or strange fire were they offering? What does that mean? Wasn't it just an order of procedure kind of thing? Nope. They didn't take it from the altar. <clears throat> sort of, Keaton, yes, but I mean, what's that? It wasn't from the altar. Yeah, but what does God say their problem is? Is their problem that they violated a command he gave? Well, in a sense, it was in how to worship. Yeah, the problem is they violated the second command how to worship. And what's interesting is we think they violated it by not doing something he commanded, but the way they violated it actually was by doing something he didn't command. You got that? That's what he ends up saying to them. You did something I didn't command. And he kills them. And worship. You did something I did not command and worship. You guys follow me on that? Regulative. Which is a violation of what? The second commandment. You're not going to worship me the way the peoples worship there. You're going to worship me the way I command. You guys follow me on that? Um, so he takes on, they take on, which is an interesting, interesting and thing with lots of implications. But he goes down and he says, he grounds all this, you don't have any other gods, you worship only me and you worship me the way I tell you, because what? You're, and you're not going to worship them because I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now stop. What what kind of jealousy is he talking about here? What's he talking about? When he uses jealousy in this phrase, what's he referring to? Talking about honor. Yeah, he's protecting his honor. Yeah. Well, and, and how so? Well, what does it mean to protect his honor here? 
we worship, how we approach Him, how we come to know Him. Yeah. You're only going to lift my name up. And you're going to do it the way I tell you to do it. Right? Because I'm God and you're not. You guys follow me on this? This is where we get into the issue of holiness. Right? The holiness of God. You guys follow, you guys following this? Okay, so look at Exodus chapter 34 now. Because we're still dealing with the same group of people. Moses lays this idea out again. <clears throat> and this is, this is a very... Um, important one actually quite key to understanding much about God in, in verse 10, if you look at verse 10 he renews the covenant in verse 10 of chapter 34 and he said, behold I am making a covenant before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among whom you are shall see shall, shall see the work of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you Observe what I command you to this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. Now, what, what are their altars and pillars and ashram? Why do they have to tear them down and cut them up? That's their worship. Right. These are their idols. This is the way they worship. Why do they have to take care about the way they make covenants with these foreign nations? So they don't fall into it. Yeah, because you might make a covenant with these foreign nations and end up doing what? Taking on their ways of worship. Compromising. Compromising, taking on their ways of worship. Even even potentially tolerating their way of worship. God's pretty intolerant here when they about the people coming to the land, right? He's not even going to... This is not like, hey, go into the land and let pluralism abound. Right? This is going to the land and and destroy all false worship. And you guys, this this is a very different thing than what we do in the New Covenant, incidentally, um, and for a variety of reasons. But one is what what? Well, let me ask you guys this question. Already, the setup is different. Why is this different than the New Covenant? How can we tolerate pluralism? Why aren't we running around chopping down everybody's false idols and um, that burning down their temples and? rooting out the land of all false religion. How, how, how come they are commanded to do that and we're not? I mean, the apostles never do it, right? There's lots of reasons. It seems like with the Holy Spirit, you know, their seals are not pointed. They fall under God's wrath, you know, by mixing and mingling, so to speak. Although we mix and mingle all religions all the we time. Do, we Syncretism happens like crazy. <clears throat> we're no longer a theocratic nation. Whereas this nation was being led specifically by God into this place, and God said, "Look, I'm delivering it all to you." He commanded them specifically to do that. That hasn't happened in our case. Yeah, so they're going into a specific land, living as a particular nation state, even aren't they? And what is all that picturing? Why? Why is God doing that? Is He just like, I really want to give the Jews a nation, or what? What? What is it? What is it that He's picturing here? Is that the end? I just really want the Jews to have their own land, and that's really the goal of all of history. I mean, what is it that he's picturing here that, that this is driving at? The New Jerusalem. Okay, yeah, so he's driving at the New Jerusalem. So, so Israel's to go and live the land, in the land as a picture, a type, of the kingdom of God that would come with his son. You guys follow that? Okay, they're a type or a picture. And here's the question. When the New Jerusalem comes... And God's kingdom is here. Will he tolerate any false religion? No. In the fullest sense. Now, God's kingdom is here in an inaugurated sense, but when it's consummated, mm-hmm. and we're in the land in the sense that the new Jerusalem comes, and 
God's ruling and reigning on earth. Well, he's not going to tolerate any false religion, right? Where's the, where's all false religion going to go? To hell, right? In the pit of fire. We see that? You guys, you guys follow that? So the reason we don't forward that is because we're not a theocratic nation. We're a spiritual nation in waiting for the day that the theocratic nation is brought by Christ. The ultimate sense. Israel is going in and doing all these things as a type, a picture of what's to come. You guys, does that, you guys get it? Okay. Another theocratic nation for that purpose. But look at verse 14. He grounds all this, what you should do, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, <clears throat> whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. <clears throat> Incidentally, up to this point, this is the only time we're, we're told that the Lord's name is something. And what, what is his name? Jealous. Jealous. That's stunning. You guys understand that the, the import of names in the Old Testament? Names are big, aren't they, in the Old Testament? Meaning. They're huge deal. What did you say? They have meaning. They have major meaning. They carry something about. And he comes in and says, the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. In case you didn't catch what that means for his name to be jealous, <laughs> he's a jealous God. But, but that sticks out. It, it should, that ought to stick out big time to you because I don't think we tend to think about God so as so jealous that he calls his name Jealous. And it's the first time he's named in all the Bible. Do you know what the Hebrew word for that is? <clears throat> um, not off the top of my head. So, um, you don't consider the, the declaration of I am, that's not a name. It's more like... Well, he doesn't... He doesn't he's, that's the unspeakable name, if you will, but it's not really... It's not really ascribed to him as a name. Who shall I tell them sent me? Tell them I am sent you, right? Or Yahweh. But they, can't, they couldn't speak it. This is the first time they, <clears throat> he's really ascribed a name in that sense. He almost puts a strike of fear in you a little bit. He says, I'm a jealous God. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think he wanted Israel to take him seriously there, right? Yeah. You think it would be easy Maybe. to kind of confuse the types of jealousy if you weren't careful? Mm-hmm. Maybe they did for the moment. I feel like you could almost think, um, it passed. Well, I'm really glad that God's jealous of me. Like, I feel like it the way I've heard it before maybe is that God's eager to constantly waiting for me to turn to him and he's jealous over all my idols and things. But I don't think that's necessarily the whole story. Yeah, so he's continually seeking, seeking to protect his own honor, to uphold his own name. He's a jealous God. So here's the question. Why isn't God's jealousy for his own honor? Because if you think about jealousy... I, it's this continual seeking to keep what is yours, right? Okay? I, I, I want to keep what is mine. Jealousy often gets misplaced when we have a girlfriend and, or some girl we like and we're jealous of some guy competing for her because we, we're trying to keep what's ours and she doesn't belong to us. I'll give you a proper place for jealousy. Some other man tries to compete with me for my wife. Is it improper for me to be jealous? No. No. I want to keep what belongs to me. She's mine, not yours. <clears throat> you guys follow me on that? Okay. Now, there are improper ways for me to carry out my jealousy. <laughs> okay, you, you guys understand that. But I wouldn't love my wife if I didn't care about men competing for her affection. Right? There's something fundamentally wrong with what I call love if I didn't care if other men were competing for my wife. You guys follow me on that? <clears throat> okay. Um, 
And God's jealousy is he's, there's something fundamentally wrong if he doesn't care when there are people competing for his glory. Right? Something fundamentally wrong with his love if he doesn't care if people are competing for his glory. And, and, and now, this is where you should feel a little bit stunned. Because you ought to be asking the question, why isn't God's jealousy for his own honor or his own glory? If he wants more than anything else his own glory, why isn't that selfish? Look at Isaiah 48 real quick. I, 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 there's other passages in Deuteronomy I can show you with regard to jealousy, but they're just repeats. You guys understand Deuteronomy is a second telling of the law. Okay, So a lot of stuff gets repeated in Deuteronomy. If you ever want a summary of, the, of Genesis through Levitic, through Numbers... And just go read Deuteronomy. That's the summary of Genesis through Numbers. Um, but go, go to Isaiah chapter 48. Because <clears throat> I want to ask this question. He says there, in chapter 48, in verse 11, um, Um, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For what? What was he talking about? Look, look up to verse 9. For my name's sake I defer my anger. In other words, I'm angry with you, but for my name's sake I defer it. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that, it, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now that that's an interesting statement because we think, well, God saved us for our sake. God is patient for our sake. God is merciful for our sake. But he says, for my own sake, my glory I will not give to another. And I'm jealous about my glory. And I'm going to seek to protect it. So now here comes the question. Why isn't that a selfish attribute? Because if you said that, you would be selfish, right? Self-centered, egotistical. So why isn't that a selfish attribute in God? Well, in a sense, God is God. He's the I am. He he is self-centered in a sense. Because everything looks to him. He is the greatest thing. Yeah, so... I know, that's probably not what you're getting at, but it's not, and I, I don't think it's quite correct what you're saying. I think okay. I, I understand what you're trying to say, but I don't think you're quite there. God is the one who's worthy of all praise and honor and glory, yeah. and we aren't. And so, if we start to apply that praise and honor and glory to ourselves, we're really robbing it from Him. And so, for Him to say. Hey, I'm jealous about my praise and honor and glory. He should be, because it doesn't belong to anybody else. It's just it's his. So what you're getting at is we are not saved for our own sake. We are saved for the glory of God. Yes, and 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 I'm getting more than that, because I'm asking the question, why is it that when God is always seeking his own glory and he won't give it to another, when he's jealous for his own name above all else, why is that good for us and not just selfish on his part? Because, because if I did the same thing, it would be only selfish. <clears throat> so why, in his case, is it good for us? Why is that love? Because, mer- listen, guys, these attributes don't compete with each other. The attributes of God are not in competition. God's not like saying, well, here in Isaiah 48, I'm putting my love on hold. Okay? 
So here's the question. Oh, I get it. Why is God's jealousy here for his own glory? Why is that still an act of love? Well, because the, the increase of his own glory is the increase of our happiness. Okay, how so? I mean, that's a great little bumper sticker. What does it mean? <clears throat> well, him, him being more glorified means that we're, we should be happier. So why? Because he's more glorified. <laughs> okay, okay. Because so I, I, read, I read a good Reformed theologian. Who said so. no, I, I know, I'm just messing with you, Jack. But you're, you're right. I mean, because I hear that phrase a lot from people. But why? Why is that phrase true? Because that's where we're saved. When we're drawn to him, that's where we're saved. Okay, so we're drawing him. Well, who is God in... Who is God? He's inherently a God who gives. Okay, let's drive back this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why does the Father create? Out of the overflow of his love for the Son. And why does the Son participate in creation? Out of his overflow for his love for his Father. And in both cases, in the Holy Spirit. And why do they create and redeem, in all three cases, out of their overflow of love for not only one another, but for their creation? Right? Okay? So, when God's glory is upheld, it's not a glory like your glory and my glory. It's a glory, like where we say, glory for us always means everybody's like, oh, look at me. Right, okay? It, it, God's glory is not turned in on himself, it's always outgoing. It always spreads, shines forth, that's why it's called light, if you think about that. It goes throughout, and it, and it's always a blessing to other people. Because there's nothing greater than the spread of God's glory, because God's glory is always outgoing, always seeking the other. You guys follow me on that? So when God's name is upheld, when, when some other name's upheld, what happens? Not outgoing anymore. Cuts off the yeah. life to us, you know. The, Cuts off life. Yeah. I mean, he's the source of our life, so if he gets more glory, we get more life. And he gets less glory, we get less life. Yeah. When God is not glorified in our lives, where our hearts are turned in on ourselves, and we get health. You guys follow that? When God is glorified in our lives, our hearts are turned out toward him, right? And we're saved. You, you understand what happens there? Um, I, I, I could spend a lot more time on it. I don't have time to spend all the time I would like to. But, but the idea is that because God's glory is always outgoing, that's where you're right, Jack, when you're saying that. But I think the question is why is because, because God's glory is always outgoing. It's always seeking the good of others. It's always bringing blessing to his people. Its purpose is the good of others, the the exaltation of one another. You guys follow me on that? Um, so that that's why it's good news. And incidentally, what's interesting about that, my glory I will not give to another. It says the same thing in Isaiah 42, incidentally, but he's speaking of this, the I will not give it to another other than who? His son. His son, my son. I'm going to only give it to him. And in John 17, Jesus says, the glory you've given me I've given to them. That'll shock you. Right? He shared it with us. You guys follow that trade? Um, Alright. So if we rob God of his glory, we're at the very end, we're taking it from ourselves. <clears throat> yep. At the very end, what we're doing is we're robbing ourselves of blessing. 
Yep. What does that look like practically? Well, obviously there's lots of ways that it could look practically, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some. It, let's let's take um, holiness, just the, the whole category of, by, by holiness I mean moral or ethical holiness. Let's take the whole category. But, and, and we'll just deal specifically with sexual purity. Okay? Because usually we think about sexual purity, and, and whether it's masturbation, or looking at pornography, or um, lusting after another woman, or committing adultery, or you take that whole category of sexual purity. You guys follow me on that? Okay? And every anytime you, you know, we, we, when we think about that, we think, well, I want to be sexually pure, because God is pure, I want to be pure, and we think about sexual purity as a non-relational category, and that's part of our problem when, when we come to it, because I just want to be pure, so I want to be holy like God's holy, and I think about it like moral purity, and I don't think about it relationally. What is the problem at the end of the day with masturbation, with pornography, with lust, with adultery? What what's at the root of all of that? Perversion of relationships. Perversion of relationships, but 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 where what what's the perversion? Self-centered. Self-centered. Yeah. It's all turned in on me, right? It's all turned in on me, and and when I'm watching pornography or I'm masturbating or I'm lusting. Who's at the center of glory in that picture? Me. You guys follow that? So you take control, and then I'm at the center. Everybody's existing. I mean, if you just look, if you've ever watched pornography in your life, I'm not encouraging you to do it, but if you ever have, you know what the story is. Some ugly dude, some hot woman shows up, and and they why do they use ugly dudes in pornography? I, I, I read a whole thing from these guys. Why do they use ugly guys? They use ugly guys because they want you to believe it could be you. Right? And the whole picture of the whole porno is that these women exi- live to serve this man. They wa- they, everything is about the man. He becomes the center of all of it. And what we do in porno is we put ourselves in our imagination in that place and let these women live to serve us. You guys follow me on that? And it becomes a complete taking. It's all taking, 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 taking. I become the center of my glory. My heart gets bent in on myself. And what happens after I commit that? For a while, I'm gratified. Tastes good for a little bit, but then what happens? What's that? More tolerance. Yeah. What's that? You build up a tolerance, and your dopamine pathways get to where they need more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. But I mean, you start to feel really bad. You start to mourn. You start to right. And, and there's all kinds of other things that happen as well because when you release dopamine in reaction to, you guys understand dopamine's released in reaction to. Um, pl- pleasure like that and masturbation you climax mm-hmm. as you're watching pornography what happens is you built up you built you actually can build up a com- chemical dependency to pornography because you're training your brain to rea- react a certain way to certain stimulus and that's a big problem um, but but here's the problem you, you end up uh, aside from the sort of chemical dependency you get on it what what's the big issue the big issue after you've done this you feel sick right you're disgusted. You're like, this is this is gross. You're empty. Even if you're not, even if you're not grossed out anymore. Say you reach the point where you you've seared your conscience because you participated in the sin so much. You still feel empty, right? Not filled, but empty. Now contrast that with going out and gen- being generous and kind to another person. 
How do you feel after you show generosity and kindness to another person? How do you feel? Fulfilled. You feel fulfilled, <clears throat> right? Yeah, I mean, over time you can get what you know, passion fatigue, but at the same time, I mean, it's not the same at all as you know, building, you know, building up an emptiness or a callousness toward sin. You know, right, well, what's driving your graciousness is part of the issue there, but our right. generosity, but I mean, I guess my point is, whenever you're, and this is how it applies, Keaton, in a day-to-day basis, whenever I turn my, whenever I turn in on myself, I'm being nothing like God. His glory is not being sought, mine is. And it destroys me. Does that make sense? Whenever I turn out toward God and others, I'm being just like God. And that's how I'm holy. That's why love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, sum up the whole law. They sum up the whole law because when I'm turned out toward God and others, I'm keeping all the other things. I'm honoring my father and mother because I'm not trying to exalt myself. Right? I'm, I'm not putting other gods before him because I'm turned out toward him. I'm not committing idolatry because I want only his, his honor. I'm not using his name in vain because... I don't I don't see him as anything other than the God he is. I'm not, you know, I am, I am keeping the Sabbath holy because I always want to rest in him. I always want to worship. I'm spending, I'm taking time out of my schedule to be doing that. You guys follow this? I'm not committing adultery because I, I'm not being selfish in that way. I'm not ki- killing my neighbor because I'm not being selfish in that way. I'm not lying because I'm not only concerned or bearing false witness because I'm only concerned about me. I'm not committing theft be- or coveting. You, you guys follow me on that? So what you're saying is all sin can be summed up under idolatry. All of it can. All of it can. Because when you do, you're putting yourself before God. Right, or selfishness. And what's distinct about God's jealousy and sinful jealousy that we sometimes experience, right? Jealousy is a good thing. The problem is, it's just like everything else, we pervert it. We pervert jealousy, we pervert love, don't we? We pervert it. We pervert all kinds of things that God, that, that is God, that God communicates to us. And, and so we'll pervert jealousy. We're supposed to experience jealousy. We're supposed to experience jealousy for God's glory. We want to see God exalted above all things. You guys follow me on that? In our other own brother's lives. Okay, so let's look at that, how that carries out in our life. Is there godly human jealousy? What does it look like? Look at Numbers 25. I want to show you godly human jealousy in the Old, in the old Covenant first. And by Old Covenant, I mean the Mosaic one. Numbers chapter 25, let me show you this. All right, while Israel lived in Shittim the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now, that's not a good summary statement of you, right? <laughs> and your activities, okay? Why is that a problem, incidentally? Well, I, other than the whoring part of it, why are the daughters of Moab? Because the daughters of Moab... They're, they're, not, they're not Jews. They're, they're not Jews. Mixing with a pagan nation. Okay, they're mixing with a pagan nation, and generally when you start mixing with pagan women, you start becoming a pagan. Learn the lesson from the Old Testament that you still see true today. Right? You start messing with pagan women, this is where you go, okay? So these invited these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. 
and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may, be, may turn away from Israel. Okay, so this is not like what we do now when you're whoring around at the church. We don't take you out and hang you in the sun so that everybody can see it. But a hanging in the sun is basically making a very strong statement to Israel, like, I'm angry, right? Um, okay. And Moses said to the, uh, to the judges of Israel, verse 5, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came... Now, let, let, let me stop before I read verse 6. I want you to stop and consider this. Why is it that God wants to show his anger to Israel? Because he loves them. Because these men, by hooking up with the Moabite women and participating in idolatry, are turning an entire people group away from what's best for them, which is God, to something that eternally destroys them. And God isn't messing with that. You guys follow? You guys follow? Okay. So he's ticked, and he's showing it. So then... Behold, one of the people came of Israel came, and this is where it gets really bad, brought a Midianite woman to his family. Now, a Midianite woman is what? Is that a Jew? Nope. Another pagan woman, right? Okay. To his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping at the entr- in the entrance of the tent of the, of the meeting. What he means by brought a woman, Midianite woman to his family is this man went and started having sex with this woman in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Here's the congregation gathered, weeping over their sin, with all these men who've been committing sin hanging in the sun. Okay? Now this you I know we read these things and disconnect ourselves from the story, but these are your fathers and your uncles and your brothers out there hanging in the sun, and they're all been hanged. There's a lot of weeping and mourning going on, right? And this man in the midst of this picture is so defiant against the Lord that he takes a woman in front of all these people weeping at the tent of the meeting and the Lord's sanctuary and lays her down and has sex with her in front of all of them, openly and publicly. What, so what's he challenging right in front of everybody? Yeah, he's challenging God's command, what God has just done. Okay. When Phineas, verse 7, the son of Eliezer, the son of, the, of Aaron the priest saw it, now that means he's a priest himself, he's a temple guard. Okay, That's his job, to guard the temple here, or the tabernacle. He saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly, thus the plague on the people of Israel stopped. In other words, they're having sex, and Phineas goes and grabs a spear, and take both of these people on the ground, imagine having sex, and Phineas sticks a spear through both of them and kills them both right in front of the congregation of the people in, in, in God's sanctuary now you know while the prayer of Jabez is a popular book the spear of Phineas is probably not going to be passed around popularly right as a book next book title you see coming to your shelves everywhere okay <laughs> well, alright what's that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah okay but here he does this verse 9 Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were twenty-four. Were twenty-four thousand, um, and the Lord 
said to Moses, Lord said to Moses, Phineas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now I could go on and read the story, but you follow what happens here. Phineas is jealous with God's jealousy. He wants God's honor to be upheld. He sees that it's not. Now there are lots of points of application here, and there are lots of things that are not points of application here. Okay? So for example, you're not a guard of God's tabernacle who has the right to um, commit capital punishment upon somebody who is sinning in this way. In the law of Moses, what was the punishment for adultery? Stoning or death, right? Um, Now, when someone's committing adultery in front of all the people with a pagan in the tabernacle, you know death is the penalty, right? You read the Old Testament enough, those people have to die, right? Okay, And Moses and all the people aren't doing it. They're standing there watching. And Phineas is the only one who has the jealousy of God within him to take the spear and go over and take care of business. Now, he was also a man who was appointed um, to that job, and then he was a guard. He was a, he's part of the priesthood who guard the tabernacle. So he, there's a lot of ways in which we can't apply that to now. But you understand the point here is that Phineas is jealous for God, and he's jealous for God for the sake of his people. Because what does he know this is going to do? If this man continues this, what's going to happen with God's wrath? It's going to get worse. But earlier in, <clears throat> in chapter 5, they hung the men, but Eleazar killed the man and the woman in this one. He killed them both. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When Phineas comes in here, he... So he must have been really, really raged. He killed both of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, they are both committing open sin. And he was concerned that this would bring God's wrath and anger upon the people. It was dishonoring God. It was going to be harmful to people, and he wanted to. You guys follow that? Okay. Now, yes, sir. So why did they they hang the chief? They hung the chiefs of the people. Yeah. And then killed the men who took the mob women. Yeah. So the chiefs of the people were responsible <coughs> for sort of letting this activity. Correct. Okay. So endorsing. Yep. Yep. You don't want to endorse that as a leader, right? Okay. Now, how does how does how does godly jealousy look in the new covenant? That's old covenant. How does it look in the new covenant? Look at Second Corinthians eleven. Paul's got a church that's turning against him, which incidentally churches do turn against the pastors who plant them. Incidentally, just so you guys know, in this case, it happened to Paul here. Um, so. Um, Lest you think it only happens to bad pastors. Apparently when it happens to apostles. Happen yeah, I don't know. Let's hope it doesn't happen to mine. But <laughs> it happens. But the uh, um, it happens to good pastors as well as bad pastors. And here's Paul's case. Um, verse 1 of chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. See, now he's jealous for them. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. What, what's, he, what's he driving at? Why is he jealous? What are the people doing? They're being led astray by false teachings. Yeah. They're being led astray by false teachings, by false Christs and false gospels. And they too easily tolerate it when people start going down that road. And Paul has a divine jealousy for them. And so he's warning them. So how, what's the new, applica- the new Testament application of godly jealousy here? Doctrine. Well, it is a doctrinal one. It is your devotion is going to someone other than Jesus. It's for the health of the church. Yeah, it's for the sake of your brothers that they not depart from the faith. Right? Be led astray. You, you guys follow that? Okay. That would be the new covenant equivalent of what what Phineas did. In other words, calling out false teaching for the sake of your brothers, people going down to a false gospel, is the new covenant equivalent of spearing somebody in front of all the people to try to save the people. You just follow that. Okay? Um, it's what happens. Our weapon isn't a spear anymore, it's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we protect our people for their sake. Um, this is a pastor. He's a good pastor. He should be jealous for his people, right? Just follow that. It was interesting. He uses. He talks about the sword and the word. How it's a double-edged sword. Yep. Where it cuts going in and coming out. Yep. That's the truth, man. <laughs> so um, that's jealousy. Let me deal with wrath briefly because wrath. You guys are more familiar with that concept of wrath. It takes a little less. Um, mm-hmm a little off stealing with in the sense of defining it, but here, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Okay, that's the bottom line. He intensely hates all sin. That's his wrath. Intensely hates all sin. So, right? is it paired with jealousy because of the converse? Because all sin is the robbing of God's glory? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, yep, that's why they're paired together. So now, I can cite a million passages um, for God's wrath, I, I can cite some in the Old Testament, but you know where I can find more passages on God's wrath than even in the Old Testament as a proportion of Scripture? Revelation. The New Testament. Right? All the time. But, but let's look at John chapter 3, because we usually look at John chapter 3 for the opposite of wrath. Right? Um... <clears throat> But on sort of a perverse basis, if I had to lay out the number of times wrath is talked about, on a perverse basis, the frequency of the concept of wrath is mentioned more in the New Testament than the Old. Right? Um, John chapter 3. We, we think the Old Testament's like, there's the wrath for God back there in the Old Testament, right? Um, so, all right. John chapter 3. We're all very familiar, of course, with uh, verse 16. We really like that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, right? Which we should. And whoever believes in him should not, should not perish but have eternal life. But what's, what's the assumed? We like all that. You know, he loved us and gave us life. But, but what, 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 did he, what did he have to save us and give us life from? Right? Death and wrath. 
okay, that's assumed behind it. Um, look, look down at verse 35, though. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay? What does that mean? The wrath of God remains on him. Why is it important the word remains? Why is that important? He doesn't believe in the Son, so the wrath of God remains on him. It was there before the offer of salvation. <laughs> yeah, it was, there, it was there before the offer of salvation or before the Son. You guys follow that? Okay? It's, it's not like all the pagan nations follow the light they have, they can get saved. And then you bring the gospel to them, and now that Jesus has arrived, they can finally be condemned. Okay, because they couldn't really be condemned before. Now that he's come, you've brought them a new sin um, that they can condemn them. Right? That's not what missions is about. Go into all the nations and declare my name so that people previously uncondemned could finally be condemned. Okay, that isn't the point. I did not bring come to, to bring condemnation because you know the wrath of God abided on you already. You were already condemned. You follow? Follow? Okay? So the wrath is already on them. Jesus has come to bring salvation from that wrath. If they don't look to the Son, then the wrath of God remains on them. Because he hates sin. Romans 1.18 is a classic passage. For the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's interesting about that is, is that the way the wrath of God is there, it's not talking about future wrath in Romans 1.18. What's it talking about? Anybody know? It already happened and it is still happening. Yeah, the wrath of God has already happened. And how is it being expressed? Three times Paul says, he turned them over, he turned them over, he turned them over. So people say, oh, well, when's the wrath of God going to come on America? It already has. We're turned over to our sin. It's here. You guys follow that? It doesn't need to come in the future. It's already here. We've been turned over to our sin. Anytime anybody's turned over to their sin... The wrath of God is there. Anytime the Holy Spirit's not at work restraining them. Yes, sir. Um, so can you draw a distinction? Because, you know, you don't look at those people and say, I can really tell the wrath of God's on right now. But is it like a passive and active kind of thing? Because I know God's forbearing until final judgment. Right. So they make a distinction the passive wrath. Yeah, I, the distinction is is that I'm sure when the actual it's, not, it's not that they're necessarily suffering now. Right, right, right. It's that they're given over to their sin and they feel good about it. They not only do such things, but they commend others who do them. Like the legalization of homosexuality. Yeah. You don't just do it, you can you commend others who do it. Commend it to others. The wrath of God is on you because you don't have your in in the sense you don't see the light of the glory of, of God you know, the gospel of Christ. Right? The gospel of the glory of Christ. You don't see it. The wrath of God is on you. You're blinded by the God of this world, and you've not been saved from that. That's scary stuff, man. That is scary yeah, stuff. I mean, well, aren't there, aren't there, isn't the wrath more demonstrated to, to sinful people, at least, in the fact that when, they, when they're given over to these sinful actions, the sinful actions result in temporal consequences, like homosexuality resulting in lower lifespan? Yeah, it may, but not always. Not always. And that's not Paul's point in Romans 1. His point is, is that they're just turned over to it. Not so that they necessarily have consequences like, for it. Let's say you have like, the Roman Empire 
should be more Paul's time given over to greed, so they go around and kill potentially. That's wrath. Potent- yeah, sure. God's wrath can show up that way, but I mean, if you look at Psalm seventy-three, I mean, it, it, you know, for example, where David's saying, "How come the the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering?" <clears throat> right? And you come to a passage where the temple, the, the the Tower of Siloam, falls on a bunch of people, mm-hmm. and Jesus and the guys come to Jesus and say, "Whose sin caused this?" Right? You know, essentially, and what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, you know, what he, he says. What <coughs> repent for the same thing. For the same thing that happened to you, right? You know, like his 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 yeah. point is, you know, it rains and it and it and this it rains and it pours and and the sun sets and shines, you know, shines on the just and the unjust, right? And so, um, the biggest the biggest part of wrath, the scariest thing about wrath is that is that God leaves you to your sin. Because when he leaves you to your sin, when he leaves you to your sin, he does not actively save you. What's the outcome of your life? Eternal hell. Well, yeah. The, well, I guess what I was trying to say is sort of along those lines because you see, you know, God's common grace makes you know what we see one thing. But when I think of wrath, I think of like Jonathan Edwards and the sinners in the hands of the angry God, like the infinite punishment, infinitely increasing. Well, Jonathan Edwards talking about what's to come for them, right? Right. But wrath is, has both a an active sense now, yeah. in that God is actively turning you over to your own sin. So it's just a slow start. And an active sense then. It's, well, yeah, I mean, listen, what's the condition of... And yes, they are suffering the effects of that, Jack, in that they're completely turning on themselves, and it's an incredibly dissatisfying life, um, although they might prosper. Uh, but if you look at, like... Um, Genesis 3. Why is it gracious of God to kick them out of the garden? To bar them from the tree of life? Why is that gracious? We don't have to think about it. It's, it's part of the curse, but it's also gracious. Why is it gracious to bar them from the tree of life? So that they, shameful. So they could die someday and not have to deal with their sin forever. You know, eating the tree of life and just continue living yeah. in misery. You live in eternal sin, you're in hell. Yeah. You guys follow me on that? You eat from the tree of life and live forever in sin... That's hell. Now you might say, oh, it's not as bad. Yes, that's not talking there about the active punishment of God. We're talking about the passive sense and that that you're you're eternally living in this horrific state of sin turned in, you know, as C.S. Lewis talks about being devilishly ugly. Whenever a man's turning on himself, he's devilishly ugly, right? Um, Because God's a giver and Satan's a taker. So, you know, which is exactly true. Um, so as you drive down that road, you understand that you're, you're you're turning on yourself forever. That would be horrific. Be a horrible way to live forever. Um, you know. All right. So many people ask. Um, what, what, what a lot of people wonder is this. Okay, and I can give you guys lots of scriptures on on wrath, but I'm not going to right now. Okay, so we don't have time. But what many people wonder or and ask is is often this: How can a loving God also be a God of wrath. Right? You guys have heard that question, right? How can a loving God also be a God of wrath? God disciplines those who he loves. I mean... Yeah, but discipline is not wrath. Okay. When God disciplines you, that's not wrath. He might be angry. He might be disciplining. But he's not condemning. Also holy. Yeah. 
Well, I, I always tell people what should be asked is how could he possibly be loving if he didn't show wrath toward those things which bring harm to his creation? So, for example, if you have a daughter and a man rapes your daughter and you say you love your daughter and you're like, well, you know, that's too bad. Grace and peace be upon him. I would think you were sicko. Right? There ought to be some wrath. Some anger kindled. Justice. Some wrath. Desire for justice. Okay? You guys follow me on that? If you really love and you don't want justice, you don't show and you don't ever get angry about sin and evil and the harm it brings to people. You don't want wrath to be you know to be administered. I, I don't I can't see how you can call that love. Yeah, be careful with that because that uh, that ends into revenge, that kind of stuff. Vengeful. If you if it's incorrectly administered. Yeah, I mean it's right. There's a fine line there. Well, yeah, but what Paul what Paul admin, tells the people is not don't desire vengeance. What does he say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You don't carry it out. Well, what's the promise to that? How does he how does he assuage you? When you see great evil taken out, and Paul says, I want to comfort you, and here's how I want to comfort you, you don't repay evil for evil. You repay good for evil. And then he goes on and says, because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Mm-hmm. So what does he comfort you with? You're going to have a, there's going to be a better vengeance that you can't even... Vengeance is coming. Yeah. You're yeah, not the, the one that's scary That about. rape scenario you just gave... There's nothing wrong with seeking justice in no. accordance with the law. In accordance with the law. You know what I mean? I mean, to really push what total justice, I don't see a problem with that. But yeah, wanting to go out and take, take a sword out. and slay this guy, that's a different animal. Well, there. you may want to, right? You may want the guy to be punished with capital punishment. You just know it's not no, your I job mean, to do it. Put it in your mm-hmm. own hand. Yeah, that's what I mean. Put it in your own hand. Mm-hmm. But for wanting, yeah, for wanting capital punishment, I don't think there's a sin in that. Because that's an extent of the law. Correct. You, if, as long as you want justice. And here's the thing that's tough about this is balancing both desiring grace and mercy, right, for somebody, and desiring justice. But apparently it's doable because if you read in Revelation chapter um, 6, Revelation chapter 6, the, the martyrs are in the throne room of God, in heaven. And what are they crying out and praying? How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? That's their prayer in heaven, completely perfected in holiness. They're asking, how long till you bring vengeance? But they're not asking for their vengeance. They're asking for God's vengeance. Well, but they're saying, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? Yeah, I know what you mean. But yeah. In other words, God to do it. Not them. Correct. On their behalf, right? Yeah. On their behalf. You guys follow that? So justice in, is not bad. It's, it's actually loving um, to want justice to happen. Um, you would not love people if you... And, and, and here's how I see it, guys, okay? This, this, let me give you the best example. I have had men come in here who just beat up their wives. <clears throat> Small woman just got beat up. I remember telling a man, and he was shocked by it, but I remember he was sitting across the table from me, and he's just beat up his wife, pretty badly beat up his wife. And she's a mess, and... I was ticked, and he starts to tell me, <clears throat> now I'm in pastoral counseling, I'm not supposed to do this, but I did, and I don't actually didn't feel a bit guilty about it. I'm going to tell you what it was. He's sitting across, and he, 
And he says, well, you know what? This woman is just constantly mouthing off. And I said, you need to stop. So what do you mean I need to stop? I said, listen, right now it is everything in me for me not to come across this table and kick your ass. So you need to stop <laughs> right now. Right? Because I'm trying to be helpful to you. You keep saying stuff like that, it's, it's not going to happen. It's just going gonna, gonna, gonna to gonna go down. And you're going to experience what she experienced. And he was like... <laughs> You know, I got a surprise. But I, I didn't feel bad, frankly, at all. I didn't walk out feel guilty. I didn't hate the guy. I loved the guy, and I was trying to stop him from getting a beating. Okay, follow me on that. But I had a, I, I had a righteous anger, and I wasn't gonna. And and, and, Frank, and you know, he's like, okay, and I wasn't mad in that sense of like, I just want to take out vengeance on this guy. I just, I just had an anger. I can't believe you beat up your wife and then you're in here talking this way. Okay? It's okay to have that kind of anger. It's what you do with it. In your anger, do not sin. Not do not be angry. You guys follow me on that? Okay? Um, so, um, how we imitate it. How we imitate it this way. We remember it's a virtue to hate sin and evil. That's virtuous. Hating sin and evil is virtue. Number one, remember it's virtuous to hate sin and evil. Okay, and the more sin and evil you see and the effects of it in people's lives, the more you start to learn to hate it. The more you see how it affects your own life, the more you see how it affects other people that you love, right? The more you start to hate it. You cannot turn on the TV and watch that a man walked into a shopping center in Oregon and shot a bunch of people and not hate sin and evil unless something's wrong with you. Well, that affects not only that, it's that kid's parents now have to live with shame of what their son did, killing those oh. people. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it just cascades. It just cascades down to all kinds of people. Second, um, and, 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 you know, even self, we, we in our culture hate sin that hurts other people, like, outwardly. Like, I shot somebody or I beat somebody up. We don't tend to hate, hate sin that seems self-harmful, self, uh, like, you know, pornography, or we don't hate that kind of sin in our culture. You should, because that hurts lots of people. It hurts the women and men who are involved in the industry, hurts the people who produce it, hurts the people who direct it, hurts the people who's you know, are married to the people who are caught up in it. You guys follow me on all that? Okay. Um, second, you follow God in hating evil and injustice and sin. So you, you remember it's a virtue, and then you follow God in hating it. It's good. You should hate it. You should hate evil. Uh, third, you keep in mind God's patience. You guys hear the third one? So you remember it's okay, it's a virtue to hate it. You hate it, and then you remember that God is patient. Right? And I could, you know, Psalm 103, 8 through 9, he talks about his patience. Um, and then fourth, you let God's wrath and that hatred of evil motivate you to want to see people saved. I'll give you the case of 2 Peter 3. What is Second Peter three? Why is God? Um, he's not slow in coming. Jesus is not slow in returning. As we count slowness, because you know a thousand years is a, is you know as a, as a day for the Lord, a day is a thousand years. But why is he waiting? Why has God not returned for people's salvation? Waiting for the full number of people saved, right? Yeah, says, God is patient. That's why he hasn't returned. Jesus has not returned because of God's patience. Because he desires that, right, all should come to repentance. Now, all who is all there, we're not going to get into that. The point is, okay, the point is 
that God is patient because he desires that men come to repentance. Whether it's the elect or everyone on earth, doesn't matter. Here's the principle I'm driving at. The reason God doesn't carry out his wrath yet is because he's patiently hoping to save people. You guys follow me on that? That's the same reason why when you hate sin and evil, remembering it's a virtue, you also exercise patience and ought to see sin and evil harming people as something that motivates you because the wrath of God is coming for all that to see them saved. You guys follow me? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, you guys can be praying along this line. Stephen, for example, tonight we're gonna have the guys are gonna, the team's gonna get together for the angel tree stuff to take these gifts to these kids whose parents' sin have brought great harm to their lives. Right? Their parents' sin, and that ought to, when we see that and are disgusted by that and hurt by that and feel bad for these kids and have compassion, at the same time ought to motivate us to pray that God would work to save people here. Because the act of kindness toward the families of these criminals is is a demonstration of patience toward them and hopefully of mercy and love seeing that to see them saved. Because we don't want the wrath of God to come upon them ultimately in that sense. You, you guys follow that? Okay. So it's the kind of things that motivate you. So you should pray for that. There's something you could pray for today. And pray that when these people go out and deliver these gifts, that the gospel's clear. Right? Okay. There you go. Let me pray. Father, thanks for um, time in your word and, and um, talking about who you are and how you work among us and, and, um, and who we're to be in light, of, in light of that. Father, I pray that you would make us um, jealous in a godly way, in a divine way, in a way that pleases you. That we would not be jealous in a sinful way, but in a way that seeks your honor and that we would carry that out. Um, in a way that, that, that honors you and your word. And Father, we pray as well with regard to wrath and hatred for sin. We pray that you would give us a, a holy hatred for sin. Um, that we would love you and others enough to hate sin. And at the same time be patient as you were patient. And that it would motivate us to pray for the salvation of people around us. Um, and to seek their salvation by spreading the gospel. We know, Father, that you are doing the same um, even now that you are seeking their salvation. That's why your Son has not returned to put all of evil under his feet in the final sense of the word because you are patiently waiting to save your people. We pray that you would do so well that, that we would be motivated to the same. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Next week will be in the next chapter of Attributes, right? So we were in chapter 12. This is next week is in chapter 13, right, of Attributes, um, Attributes of God. If you have Grudem, you can read those. If you don't, you can. If, I'll give you the reading list for the other theologians, the other systematic theologies that I linked up. Can you email me the reading list? Yeah. yeah. So we should be that.